0: in a society that often speaks of greatness. Many aspire to this greatness. Often we tell children that they really want to in this life, they can potentially be great. And we live in a city filled with extraordinary people doing significant work, even great scholars, great physicians, great engineers in so many fields, people doing great things. conversations with one another, sometimes we debate, who's the greatest? Perhaps an area of interest. You love movies. Well, well, who's the greatest actor? Musician, who's the greatest guitar player? Who's the greatest athlete? What about Jesus? What does he say about being great? Is there a greatness that can be pursued in this life? And even beyond, or as Christians, are we to, to shun all pursuit of greatness? That's what we're going to see this morning in our text: Jesus' thoughts on greatness. If you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 18. So, daily Matthew 18, beginning in verse one, and in the Bibles near you, you can find that on page 823. Page 823, I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text as we work through it. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 18. Smaller numbers, the verse numbers. We'll mention those throughout our time together. Uh, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, stack of Bibles, a sign that says free. Please, following the service, grab one of those and take it with you to, today as our gift to you. So, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like the child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world! For temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Today in our passage, we see this emphasis. Embrace the humble way of Jesus' kingdom. Embrace the humble way of Jesus' kingdom. And we'll see this in three parts this morning. First, cultivating humility. Second, resisting sin. Third, protecting others. Cultivating humility, resisting sin, protecting others. So first we see cultivating humility, verses 1 through 4. We saw last week that Jesus again predicted to his disciples what was going to happen to him. That he would be handed over, he would be betrayed, he would be put to death, and on the third day raised from the dead. Following on that then, one of the things the disciples do is they have this question we see in verse 1. The disciples come to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Kingdom of heaven re- refers also to the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus, the king, his kingdom, they're asking, who's the greatest in that? That's certainly an interesting question. And it could be asked in a generally positive way. They could have been saying, you know, who is the greatest in the kingdom that we might give them sort of appropriate honor and respect for being the greatest? However, I don't think that's the thought of the disciples. Based on their own immaturity, we see across the gospel accounts and based on how Jesus responds, it doesn't seem they were trying to find out who they could honor, but they were wondering, are we the greatest in the kingdom? Or perhaps aren't we the greatest in the kingdom? And they may have thought that because of their clear nearness to Jesus. He invested so much time in them at the very least, it would seem that they're wondering, if we're not at the top, we're pretty close. So, so what would it take to sort of cross over to be the true greatest in the kingdom? They were seeking, or believe they already had, a certain level of status in Jesus' kingdom. And they were out, not for the glory of Jesus, but for self-glory. So the disciples asked Jesus, and they wait for his response. Notice how Jesus responds. First, Jesus calls a little child to him, has the child stand right in the midst of his disciples and some level of crowd that's there as well. And Jesus uses this phrase, truly I say to you. He occasionally uses this phrase in the gospel accounts, and this is, when he uses it, he's especially flagging what he's about to say. This is of great importance. So here, he does two things. He says, truly I say to you and He brings this child as an illustration. Now in Jesus' teaching, we often see him using illustrations. He he refers to uh, seed and to harvest, to sheep, to shepherds, to mountains. But as best we can tell by the text, he doesn't often have an actual object, physical object lesson. We don't know of him often like bringing a sheep into the midst of them, even though he spoke of them often. But here. Even though it wasn't necessary, he clearly could have spoken of a child without bringing a child into their midst. For some reason, Jesus wants an actual physical object lesson for them. Why? Why have a person stand there? Because it seems that Jesus especially wants this teaching to stick. This is a very important teaching and one that honestly is, will see, we don't really want to receive. And they didn't want to receive either. So this is clearly a very important teaching for them and for us and for every Christian. Now, their question was, who's the greatest in the kingdom? But before getting to that question, Jesus says something else. Look at verse 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So before you can be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to actually be in the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom. So Jesus, by this, is saying that a person isn't just naturally in the kingdom of Jesus simply because we're a human. And the Bible places a high value on all people because we're created in the image of God. So Christians believe every person has respect, that they deserve dignity simply for being a human. But the Bible does not say that by our very nature, we're automatically in the kingdom of Jesus. Instead, it says the way into the kingdom is that a person must turn... And become like a child. Now, by this, Jesus is not teaching that children are perfect, nor naturally pure, or sinless, or tremendously faithful. For they aren't. If you don't believe me, go spend a little bit of time with kids. They're incredibly cute. From a very young age, they are thoroughly sinful. They're cute sinners, that's true, but they are sinful. So, So Jesus is not saying they're perfect. And the culture of that day, which was very different than America. In America today, we we elevate children. We love children, sometimes even to a sort of unhealthy level. But we think very highly of children. But in society of that day, children were seen as much less important and certainly kept on the periphery of society until they grew older. So in that day, for Jesus to make a statement, become like a child was truly an odd, even shocking statement to make. For in a culture where honor, maintaining your honor was so essential and shame was to be avoided at all costs, Jesus is calling them, in essence, put aside your honor to a certain level, shame yourself to become like a child would have been a very strange teaching. And it's called to become like a child. It is a call to humble oneself to set aside this pursuit of our own honor, pursuit of our own status. And so we enter the kingdom of Jesus by humbly trusting in the king, Jesus Christ, trusting in his teaching and trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. For in his teaching, he consistently points towards our need of a savior and he is that savior. So to enter Jesus' kingdom, we ask for help from the king. And we do it in admitting our need of a savior. And as we think about what this humility looks like, Jesus demonstrated a shocking picture of humility in his taking on flesh. Jesus Christ, the son of God, takes on flesh and walks among us, enduring the human experience, facing suffering, difficulty, enduring hardship. All of this at great cost to himself. And then his humility went even deeper to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where the sinless son of God endured the shame, public humiliation of the cross, treated like the worst of rebels, so that through his death in our place, his resurrection, he might provide through that this free gift of salvation held out to any and all who receive it by faith. All that is required to experience this salvation, to enter the kingdom is to humble ourselves to the point of admitting we need a savior and in humility, repenting and trusting in Christ. So Jesus says, that's the way into the kingdom. Now on one level, it's sobering news because he's saying that no one is automatically in the kingdom. On the other hand, it is good news because Jesus is saying, there is a way into the kingdom. That's what He's announcing. There is a way, and this way is available to any and all who'd be willing to become like a child and enter into his kingdom. And so friend, the question I have for you this morning is, have you ever entered the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of Jesus. And as I mentioned, none of us are automatically in it. Perhaps you grew up in a a family that attended church regularly. That's a good and positive blessing. But you might attend church with your family every day of your life, but that does not make one a Christian. You might have even been as an infant baptized. That does not make one a Christian. But instead, each one of us has to come to the place of understanding our need of a Savior. Turning away from self and turning to Christ. So if you're new to Christianity, we're so glad you would... Join us this morning and we would love for you to know more of this. So to the extent that you want to know more, we would love to tell you. I'll be at the door on the way out. I'd love to chat with you. Or if a coworker, a friend invited you, and they're a Christian, they would love to tell you more as well. The challenge of this becoming like a child is that it is so unnatural for us to do. And especially when things are going well in life, when we're strong, healthy and wealthy. Or perhaps a student headed towards that one day, healthy and wealthy. And when we're strong, it's so hard to humble ourselves. It's normally when we face some difficulty, some brokenness that perhaps for the first time we're willing to look up and consider, could there be a way out for us? Could Christ be that way? So the way in is with humble, childlike trust in the king. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, this is the way in. It's also the way to continue to live in the kingdom of God. It's the way in and the way forward. Look at verse four. So now he gets to their question. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, don't even consider the question of who might be the greatest. But he says, in essence, there is such a category, but it's it's not limited to only a few. In fact, any and all who are in the kingdom who choose to humble themselves like a child, they are the greatest in this kingdom. So we enter by turning and becoming childlike and we continue by humbling ourselves like a child. So importantly, friends, this humbling is not a one-time action. It's an ongoing action. Lifelong pursuit of cultivating humility. The sobering reality is that humility will never come naturally to us, nor easily. And even present humility is no guarantee of future humility. You could be humble today, and yet grow in pride in the days to come. So if we want to cultivate humility, what are some ways that we can do that? at the outset, we'd want to admit we're not humble. That's the first way in. To admit, at the core, I am prone to pride. And then admit that pride will always be a danger. Every day of this life, until we are with Christ for eternity, it will always be a danger for every one of us. And then to cultivate humility, we want to think often on our need of a Savior and Christ's saving work. We sometimes refer to this as preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves again and again. God, in the name of Milton Vincent wrote a little book called *The Gospel Primer*, and he says this: Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins and the crucifixion of God's own son in my place. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. Conversely, humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel. In my office, I have two plants. And if you come to my, visit me in my office at some point, most of the time when you're there, you'll find that my plants are beginning to wilt or substantially wilting. But just before they're gone, I swoop in and give them a little more water and they come back. And they begin to flourish again. On a good week, I might water them twice and they really begin to kind of come back to life. They're very, quite durable, but often wilting instead of flourishing. And friends, we wanna grow humility in our hearts. We wanna see pride wilt. And one of the best ways to do that is to think often where we once were apart from Christ, what Christ has done for us in the gospel and his faithfulness going forward. And as we dwell on that, sing of that, think on that, humility can flourish. Another way of cultivating humility might be to, to ask God to help you discern and see where pride is in your heart. I mean, the surface level, probably all us could name pretty quickly. Here's an area where pride shows up, but it's so pervasive. And honestly, we don't want to see it. So, so we need God's help to help us to see it. You might also choose to resist the temptation to to recognize or to, to lead with your accolades from this world. Many of you have substantial accolades, and we can at times unhelpfully or pridefully lead with those. But the fact is, on the other side, when we're growing in humility, you don't have to hide those accolades. You could have substantial accolades and not be defined by them, so therefore you don't have to hide it from someone. If someone asks you, did you do this, you don't have to lie to them to try to maintain humility. You can actually say, well, yeah, actually that did happen. That's the grace that comes in growing in humility. We also can cultivate this humility by praying in a childlike way. We looked at that last week in the regular rhythms of the Christian, asking our Father in prayer, asking as a child for God to intervene, for God to do for us what only God can do. We can cultivate humility by, by seeking to be thankful. Our hearts naturally envy. We grumble about what God has not done for us. What if you began to, to exercise the muscle of thankfulness, giving thanks for small things and big things Regularly, we also can grow in humility by seeking to look away from ourselves to look to others. Believe it or not, not everything has to be about us. Not every conversation has to circle back to us, but we can actually think of this other person. How can I encourage them, listen to them, not try to push my story on them? Seek their. And the way also to cultivate humility is to look for ways to serve. To serve your roommates, to serve in your dorm, in your family, in the workplace, in the church. Intentionally choosing to watch for ways to serve. So you're walking down the dorm hallway and there's just a mess in the hallway. You might think, well, someone should clean that up. true. Or you could clean it up. Or in the office. There's something that needs to be done and and in your mind, you know, there's someone, a couple of rungs down the ladder who should do that. Fair enough. It probably wouldn't get you fired if you actually did it instead of them. If you sought to serve in that way. Life of the church. Looking for ways to serve. And let me commend, there are many ways to serve in life of the church, but one of those that I think can be particularly helpful is to serve in the children's ministry It happens during the nine o'clock service. So one, because we're called to be childlike, not childish, childlike, but if I'm never around children, I may forget what are children like? So you get to see them down there. You know, see how free they are, how open they are, how they they sing and listen and play and sin. You get to see that up close, that they're not perfect as you serve. So when you learn from children, but also as you lower yourself to serve them, it's hard to cultivate pride when you're crawling around on your knees with kids or cultivate pride when you're changing a diaper or cultivate pride when you're trying to teach them and maybe they're just not listening very much to you. And the nice thing is the kids don't know if you have credentials and if you do, they don't care. They don't even know what a PhD is, so you won't be so impressive to them. So, friend, that's good for us to look for ways to humble ourselves and serve. So, friend, I wonder what does it look like for you to cultivate humility? Because of Christ, we can make progress in this. We may be thoroughly prideful today, but by God's grace in the days and weeks and months ahead, we can make progress. So we see cultivating humility, but we also see, second, we want to engage in resisting sin. Resisting sin in verses 5 through 9. Now here, as Jesus refers to one such child, or these little ones who believe in me, we want to think about, okay, who is Jesus talking about? Is he changing the subject here? Well, certainly Jesus loves children, and we love children as well. And these principles apply to children He's continuing the same line of argument, the same line of thought. So by these little ones who believe in me, he's continuing to refer to disciples, those who have repented and believe in Jesus. It tells us that we, as Christians, are to humbly receive, welcome other believers. Now, we're also going to be a people who, who welcome all. But here in particular, he's zebraing in on this, that we welcome into the church, into our lives, into our homes. And we welcome other believers because they belong to the kingdom of Jesus. And they are, therefore, a part of the family of God with us. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus says, when we do so, there's a way that we are welcoming him as we welcome them. For this is a beautiful, Christ-like, humble act to welcome and receive other believers it's beautiful to see in the life of the church. I see it happen, so many of you doing it, or I hear of it happening. In larger groups in your home to smaller around your table. It's a good and godly thing to welcome in that way. And then Jesus warns us of an alternative action that is the extreme opposite. All believers who trust in Christ are given this grave warning of causing another believer to sin. And he uses this graphic description. It would be better to have a heavy millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. So obviously, there's a weighty significance to leading another to stumble into sin. It is to be avoided at all costs. So you might ask, well, how could a Christian potentially lead another to stumble, lead another to sin? Well, we typically do it by by our teaching, by our words, and also by our living, by our lifestyle. Now, Our teaching might be formal teaching, where very often it would probably be informal, but, but things we're saying or advocating, trying to persuade someone to, or by the way that we're living before others. Now, sometimes this leading astray might be done intentionally. And where this sometimes shows up is that there's a Christian who's beginning to wander into a particular sin or particular belief and we typically don't want to wander alone. So I'm trying to persuade someone else to begin to join me in this activity or join me in this belief. Makes us feel better on this path that we're in. So, so we might teach someone, recommend someone, point someone towards a dangerous path. It can also happen though, when we're, we're not necessarily wandering ourselves, but we might be imposing our preferences on others in an unhealthy way. In the Christian life, there are a variety of areas of Christian freedom, where a Christian may choose to do this, they may choose not to do this, but, but there's openness in God's word to handle it in different ways. But sometimes what we can do is we have our own view in Christian freedom, but we might impose it on another as if it's required and we might lead someone into sin. So an example of this would be that the scriptures say that a Christian must not get drunk with alcohol. But a Christian can drink in moderation or a Christian can choose to abstain. Both of those are appropriate godly choices. The one exception, not drunkenness. Let's say you're a Christian who who practices moderation. You're free to do that. But then you have a friend who abstains, chooses to abstain. But you try to persuade this person, maybe a number of times, trying to convince them of the goodness, the freedom that's found in consuming some alcohol. But as you push on them towards it more and more, they then move to moderation, but then eventually they they move to drunkenness beyond what is acceptable. And part of it is that we press that on them, even though there's freedom under it, we unhelpfully led them into temptation. So we want to be careful, cautious, that we don't cause others to stumble. We also want to be alert to temptations that arise in our society. We might say sin out there. Look at verse seven. It says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. So friends, we don't want to be naive. We want to be alert that we live in a world that is marred by sin. So much of the culture is not advocating a godly way. It's not flowing from a Christian worldview. So we shouldn't be surprised that so much in this world would be a source of temptation to us. So that should lead us not to flee the world, but to be diligent and discerning to temptations that may come from outside. But also in resisting sin, we see that we must be careful of temptations within temptations out there are dangerous. Some of the most powerful ones are the ones that come from within. We, we understand in the scriptures that those who are saved by grace are, are changed, and yet there's still in this life sin remaining, this indwelling sin that we continue to have to fight in this life. And so notice what Jesus says, verse eight, if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So Jesus says in multiple illustrations here, it's better to enter life, referring to life eternal, In this way, rather than keeping your whole body, but facing eternal judgment. Now, Jesus is not pointing us to to literally cutting off a hand or or literally removing an eye, but He's using those images to shock us because He does want us to be alert to the danger and to call us to drastic action where that is necessary to help us resist sin. Friend, sin is serious. And it's destructive and, and often the wisest way to fight sin, to avoid sin is to take drastic action. So I wonder as you think about what drastic action could look like for you, what might it take to free you from an ongoing struggle of sin? So we want to be wise, we want to consider, ask yourself what are the sources of temptation in your life right now that you could potentially eliminate or at least limit. And often we might become aware of sin and we know the pain of it. And so to a certain extent, we would like to overcome the sin. But in some other ways, we can't really imagine life without that sin. We both hate that sin and love that sin. We don't want the sin to kill us. We're actually not sure we want to kill that sin either. So sometimes we begin to justify our own actions. We begin to think, well, if this is sin, why is it so enjoyable to me? If this is sin, why does this seem to satisfy me today? If this is sin, why is it so easy? In fact, why does this feel natural? And when I do it, it actually feels like this is what I was made to do.